my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm very grateful today to be with Lila June. Lila June is a nationally and internationally renowned public speaker, poet, hip-hop artist, and acoustic singer-songwriter of Dine and Cheyenne lineages. Her music and message centers around intergeneration and inter-ethnic healing, as well as an articulation of indigenous philosophy. Her life story of addiction, abuse, discrimination, and eventually overcoming these battles gives her a powerful vantage point from which to share a message of love, unification, and healing. Lila's urgent, vibrant stage presence and ability to convey paths forward for indigenous liberation have brought her to universities, school assemblies, conferences, music festivals, and communities across the United States. She is the founder of the Taos Peace and Reconciliation Council the National Bielina Movement, the Black Hill Unity Concert, and she is also the founder of Regeneration Festival. She graduated with honors from Stanford University with a degree of environmental anthropology. Lila, um, my name is Joanna Harcourt-Smith, and I have done hundreds and hundreds of interviews and often all the time I see on the um, on the television and all over the place that the interviewer has to have it really together no matter what she's what she's going through uh, I'm also a sober woman and uh, I'm going through a really I'm having a really hard time today and uh, Actually, I'm crying and I'm having, uh, I've been sober many years and I've been, I'm having a bout of self-hatred today. And I believe that self-hatred in us, uh, whether we're 73 years old like me or a young sober woman like you, is uh, comes from similar roots of abuse and trauma. And so... I'm um, I'm asking for your support and your help today in being the authentic self that uh, that I'm feeling right now. So yeah, yeah. that is completely okay, and uh, I I appreciate and I honor and I admire your vulnerability. Thank you. That's. Uh, that's the only way I have known in um, 34 years of sobriety to um, to stay sober, not to pick up uh, 
not to pick up alcohol or dangerous drugs. So, so welcome, sister. I'm. Uh, yes, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Good. So, um, your your um, your story, your article, your writing about uh, being an indigenous woman who uh, who received her European ancestors in her heart touched me a lot because I know that we Europeans have also suffered a lot and uh, we've taken it out on um, on you and on a lot of other people. So could you speak about coming home together? Absolutely. Um, it's one of my favorite topics. Um, and before I start, I just want to preface just very quickly by saying that... Um, I love the title of this podcast, Future Primitive. Um, I, and I also want to acknowledge that um, it, Native peoples across the globe have been called primitive throughout uh, history. And what's ironic about that is we actually had very sophisticated and advanced societies that were highly organized. And we managed the land extensively. And we were densely populated um, sustainable societies so it's funny that we were called primitive but i just before we jump into this topic i just want to make a quick note that 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 is uh something to be conscious about and and just to any of my native colleagues or native contemporary listening uh, i just want them all to know that i i see that the 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 roots of that word and that is definitely not what I align with or what I think the, the hosts of this podcast align with either. But I just want to say that real quick. And to your question, how do we come home together as Native American people and Native European people, as indigenous peoples to our respective homelands? Um, I think that it's a long and complex story involving multiple layers and cycles of violence that were perpetuated from Roman times and probably, uh, in fact, definitely before Roman times. There's a long legacy of, of slavery throughout the world that didn't necessarily begin in Europe, but definitely made its way over there. And so I think personally that forgiveness is the way home. As Native people, I have a lot of friends, you know, and we have a lot of pain and bitterness. And I was honored to write this article as a, as a half, I'm half Native American, half European, more or less. And I was honored to write this article because I knew it would be powerful coming from my voice because European nations have not been given permission to grieve because of the atrocity, atrocities they've committed on others other nations. However, I'm a believer in restorative justice. And I think that Europeans do have a lot to grieve over, uh, including the witch burnings, which affected uh, millions of women in some form or another, including the destruction of native languages. For instance, Welsh 
was prohibited in uh, in uh, up until the 1920s and 30s, and maybe even later. And and a lot of hard things that happened, such as disease epidemics that wiped out a third of Europe overnight, the ho- the Holocaust. You can go on and on. There's lots of difficult things, and so I think that until European peoples are given the space to grieve and to feel pain that they don't even know that they need to feel sometimes, they're not going to be able to be uh, healthy for the rest of the world. So as a Native American person who wants European American people to be kind, to be generous, to to act in a good way, to not be racist, etc., I'm actually slowing that process down by getting mad at European Americans. I'm actually slowing that process down by judging them. I'm actually slowing that process down by outcasting them. And sort of counterintuitively, the correct answer in this ironic way is actually to be loving to European Americans, to be understanding of the millennia of torture that they are coming out of. Really hard, you know, horrific things happened in Europe. And and also uh, acknowledging that they have never had a space to feel this pain. So that's sort of my, my long-winded answer to your question. But in short, uh, I could sum it up just by saying love is the answer. Right. And, and maybe we need to work together intergenerationally to um, facilitate to to facilitate that capacity for grief in each other, because like today, uh, the way I feel, I know it's because I need to grieve s- some more. So how can we help each other get to that raw place? Uh, beyond the place of anger. Right. Uh, I think intergenerationally, intergenerational is the only way it's going to happen because only intergenerationally can we tap into the pain of our foremothers and the pain of our forefathers. And a lot of the, the pain that we as Native Americans carry is pain that our grandparents passed on to us. And so uh, I think the further you can go back and understand what your grandparents went through, what your great-grandparents went through, etc., cetera, um, is, is the, the better because you will know more intimately, more intricately uh, that you have inherited personally. And once we understand what we have inherited personally, we can get on top of our trauma instead of our trauma being on top of us. For example, yes, for example, a Native American child who has no money, who grew up with alcohol in their home and drugs, who grew up with incest in their home, you know, that kid, if they don't understand how the United States government put their grandparents in boarding schools where they ripped away their language, they ripped away their culture, they molested all the children in these boarding schools, and I have sources for that if you want me to prove it. And they also, 
Yeah. And they also um, imported alcohol into our Native American communities because they knew a warrior is much easier to defeat if she's drunk. So if the child doesn't understand why there's incest in her home, why is there alcohol in her home? Why is she poverty stricken? Then she'll just take it to believe that she's bad and her family is bad. But that's not true. She's not bad. Her family's not even bad. The person who's incesting her isn't even bad. I mean, that's bad behavior. We could definitely say that. But the person is not bad. Because when you really zoom out and you really take 10 steps back, you'll see that this family is trying to overcome great trauma that was inflicted on them. So I think intergenerationally is the only way this healing is going to happen. And to... to one of the reasons why we pass on these bad behaviors is because we're afraid of feeling, right? Yep. If your dad molested you, you don't really want to look at that. You don't want to admit it. You don't want to talk about it. But the pro and, and sometimes you'll even convince yourself that it was okay. You know, that he did that because he loved me or he did that because it's normal or, you know, you make all kinds of interesting, um, you know, uh, uh, justifications in your head. But then the problem with that is then therefore it's okay to do to your child and you, cause you've convinced yourself that it's love, then you're going to quote unquote love your child the same way. And so that's why a lot of these behaviors get passed on from generation to generation is because it's scary to feel what really happened to us. However, if we have the courage to feel what really happened to us and give each other safe spaces to grieve, give each other safe spaces to see it wasn't our fault, then we can see that that actually hurt very badly and we don't want to pass that on to the next generation. Naila, what is it that got you sober and... uh allowed you to step into your leadership and usefulness in the world? Wow, that's a big, beautiful question. Um, Well, basically, exactly what I just said is 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 what what helped me get sober is some people call it grace. It's this idea that we love the quote unquote sinner, right? Just seven years ago, I was a drug addict. I was a drug dealer. I was a kleptomaniac, which means someone who's addicted to stealing things. I was your classic criminal. I was like not good for society. But what's interesting is I started praying to get sober because I realized I had to get sober or I would die. So I started praying and the way that creator came to me, I, some people call it God. I call it creator. It's the force that loves us. It's the force that's willing to help us, uh, more than willing to help us, but we have to be open to it. But anyways, I called upon creator and the way creator came to me was so loving, so kind and so gentle because they didn't say, Oh, you 
are selling drugs, you're a bad girl, you're going to go to jail. You know, they didn't say that. They didn't say, oh, you're bad for doing drugs. How could you be so stupid? No, they didn't say that. What they said was, <laughs> I'm sorry you grew up with alcohol in your home. I'm sorry that your family members sold drugs around you when you were a little girl. I'm sorry that you've been sexually abused. They, they didn't come at me saying you're bad. They came at me saying, I'm sorry I'm for sorry. what you've been through. And once I understood what I had been through, I realized that the drug addiction, the drug dealing, and even the shoplifting was all a symptom of a deeper pain that I had not dealt with. And so what I had to do was I had to go back and I had to really feel not normalize, but feel how painful it was to have everyone on alcohol and drugs around me as a little girl. Right. And I had to really feel that that was not, that didn't make me feel good. That didn't make me feel safe. That didn't make me feel happy as a child. And once I really felt that pain for what it was, I realized that that, that isn't normal, that that shouldn't be just as normal as the sky being blue. But the real thing that really got me to quit yeah. is they said, Lila, you are worthy of serving creator because all that stuff wasn't your fault. And if you want to serve creator, you got to put down those chemicals because they said the human body is made to be clear of those things. And so you will be the most fit warrior and the most uh, optimal warrior if you are clear of those things. And the world is hurting very badly and we could use your help very badly. And if you're willing to fight with us, please put those drugs and alcohol down. And so it was not my love for myself that made me quit. It was actually my love for others that made me quit. I was like, I wanna be the best warrior I could be for creator. I want to be the best warrior I could be for my people. I want to be the best warrior I could be for my little sister. I want to be the best warrior that I can be for the children that I talk to in schools. I want to stand in front of them and say, I have been sober for six years. You know, I want to be able to do that. And so around that time, I quit all of it on a, on a dime. I didn't go to AA, uh, although I think that's great. A lot of people are helped a lot by AA. I just sure. said, you know what? I am worthy of serving creator and this is how I serve him best. And I quit. Beautiful. Beautiful. I, I, I also believe that that's what we need to do. We, we are, all of us are needed to be leaders. So my next question to you is, how does your, your being a poet, your being a leader, your being a speaker, how does it feel? How does it present your, uh, well, how does it present itself? And, uh, and perhaps, I mean, it's like a big question too, but, um, speak about maybe some very special moments that, you've had with people since you've stepped into your power? You know, I think that 
I think that the greatest things I've done, I didn't even do because it's, it's only when I opened myself to creator and I made a very simple prayer, which was use me just two words (laughs) changed my life. Mm -hmm. When I looked to the sky and I said, use me. And so some of the greatest things I've done, I didn't even do. I was just the instrument. And I think as I started stepping into this leadership role, there's a very delicate balance to strike between absolutely knowing that I am worthy of doing this and absolutely knowing that not only is it okay for me to be out there in the world, but they desperately need me to be out there in the world. So a balance between that confidence and also humility as deep as I can muster it Mm -hmm. because I also need to give all of the applause. I I haven't counted how many standing ovations I got in 2018, but it was a lot. Right. And and every time it happens, it blows my mind. I'm just like, whoa, what just happened? Why are they standing? Did I do something interesting? And, and they just over and over and over, they stand up, they clap, they stand up, they clap, they, they get out of the, I did a speech in uh, Devon, England, and they said, we've been having these talks every other Wednesday for four years, and I've never seen people stand up like that. And I was like, wow, what am I doing? But the humility needs to come in right then, because I need to remember Creator is who they're standing for. Creator is who they're clapping for. And and as as long as I keep funneling that applause away from me and towards creator, I can remain in my power because I've done this a few times when I was younger and not as smart <laughs> where I, I really got into my ego and I really got into my, uh, and it's still a struggle for me to this day, but I'm realizing that I need to always give all the praise to creator. So I think some examples are, I mean, there's so many examples. I was on 60 airplanes last year and that's including layover airplanes, but still there's a lot of airplanes (laughs) to go up and down in the air all the time. And uh, I do lots of, uh, lots of performances. I'm on my way to the airport right now to do um, a performance in New York city so there's there's a lot of different experiences I could talk about, right. but I think the 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 ones that make me most happy are the ones where a woman comes up to me afterward and says, "Thank you for sharing your story of sexual abuse because I went through the same thing and I didn't know that anyone else had been through it, and I didn't know that if you went through it, you're still a, a worthy woman." And I didn't know that I had any worth and you just showed me that. And so sometimes that happens. And for me personally, that's my goal is to leverage my story to heal the women. Uh, I mean, I do things besides that, but that's a really core priority of mine. And then my, my significant other is a male. So he helps the males but my job is kind of to help the women and help them get back on their feet because rape is a very uh, confusing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it makes us think we're unworthy when we're not. And it, it, it robs us from our powerful leadership positions that we were born for. 
So that's sort of how I feel. It's, it's, it's a mixture of like absolutely knowing that I'm worthy of being this instrument and, and at the same time remembering that anything good I do does not even come from me. It comes from creator and therefore the credit goes to creator as well. Thank you. Thank you for for being um, vulnerable about that. Hello, Laila. This is uh, Jose Luis. Uh, I'm the co-founder and producer of uh, Future Primitive, and I I am very happy that you pointed to the our title. I think it's a great opportunity to for me to to explain to make clear that. And the title of our podcast uh, came to us from uh, one of the pioneers of uh, the deep ecology movement, uh, Dolores Lachapelle. She wrote a book about D.H. Lawrence, who precisely was one of the first intellectuals and, and poets that were in a deep, deep research to reconnect with the uh, with the original meaning of, of of the word primitive, in this case, uh, before all the law, the racist law that got the, the, the word, I think, it in, in the 18th century, the first meaning from, from the Latin means precisely first people, first, original, uh, first of its kind. So D.H. Lawrence uh, was in, in search of uh, this... Uh, reconnection with the original roots of being human for the Western people. And then the Dolores Lachapelle wrote this book about him precisely called Future Primitive. And I was I, I wanted to, to ask you precisely about this sophistication of the ways the, of science and the worldview of, of the first people. Absolutely. Uh, and thank you for uh, tracing the etymology of that word back to its original meaning. I think it's a classic example of how miscommunication happens because primitive is such a highly charged word in my community. It's like, even though it has that beautiful meaning, um, the context in which it has been used was so painful that we... We, we don't like the word anymore. And even the word pioneer, we have a hard time with that word because um, the Western world would say, oh, we're pioneering into this science and pioneering into that science. It's like, actually, we went into those sciences a long time ago. <laughs> um, we've been we've been living in those sciences. So you're not the first um, to go into it. Um, so there's all it's it's. It's such an interesting world to live in as a Native American woman because Native people have been hurt so badly, um, as have almost all communities around the world, that I have to be so careful what I talk about because as a leader and as a spokeswoman in my communities, if I say the wrong thing, then my own people write me off and they say, oh, Lila's talking about primitive and pioneering and so that's why I wanted to make that preface but in terms of our sophistication as native peoples I mean that it's it's incredible I think one of the things that I'm most interested in these days and something I'm doing my PhD on 
is the uh, bio, uh, bioengineering of entire landscapes that indigenous peoples used to practice. And when I say bioengineering, I don't mean genetic modification or working in labs to splice genes and stuff. What I mean is we actually had a keen understanding of how seeds work, of how fire works, of how genetic diversity works. And we practiced a form of polyculture. And polyculture, as you may uh, surmise, is the opposite of monoculture. And we also practiced uh, a type of polyculture where we would cultivate a wide diversity of food food plants uh, in ways that were fitting with what the what the mother earth wanted to do already so we would see what earth had in certain places and we would enhance it and we would make it uh more rich we wouldn't take a palm tree and plant it in california because there were no palm trees in california before the colonists came and so we honored the local ecology that was there and we say oh wow creator put a lot of acorns here a lot of oak trees here wow maybe we should burn around the oak trees so that we could burn away the understory to create habitat for the deer to walk through and as we burn it we're actually blessing the the oak trees because all of that uh smoke from the from the micro fires actually would go through the leaves of the oak trees and would actually kill all the bugs, all the pests in the oak trees, and they would fall and they would and they would die. And so we were actually we were actually stewards of forests. Uh, and there's incredible Western research that actually aligns with that truth and 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 sort of validates that truth from a Western scientific standpoint. But for example, a really beautiful article just came out that says the legacy of 4,500 years of polyculture in the eastern Amazon rainforest. And what they found was the, the bioengineering pressure of the indigenous peoples of the Amazon actually created a hyperdominance of edible plant species. And by that, we mean they actually enriched the forest to be a food producing forest, not only for themselves, but for all the animals in the whole forest. So basically what they're proving is that human beings had a part in the creation of the Amazon rainforest. And you look at the terra preta, which is the the black soil, and, and how deep this very rich, loamy soil goes meters deep into the ground, and, and we have come to understand that this soil didn't just pop up out of nowhere. Human beings made the, the loamy, deep soil of the rainforest. And so I could go on and on for hours about this. This is like one of my favorite subjects. But the point is that we manage the land extensively and the forests that Europeans encountered when they first came to the Americas was anything but wild. It, it was not wild. It was carefully manicured and carefully caretaken so that it could actually 
be a very um, fruitful forest and a lot of it had to do with our food systems and 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 making sure we had food for the winter food for the spring food for the summer and food for the fall and seasonally we would work with the rhythms of the trees the rhythms of the animals the rhythms of the fungi and we would actually uh create entire forests with our bare hands so that's absolutely participation, co-creation with the mother and and the little girl all in one. The opposite again of uh, of rape, nurturing, nurturing, nurturing. Yes, absolutely. And I think that a lot of conservation biologists say, oh, let's create a national park. And we'll just close it off and it'll be human free. Yeah. Um, but and, and then we can pollute everywhere else. But as long as we protect this little spot here, it, we'll, we'll conserve enough biodiversity to, to last us um, through the millennia. And that's just such a, a primitive way to think of it. Not primitive in the sense of the first peoples, but it's, it's a very arc, um, uh, unintelligent, unintelligent unintelligent way to look at the earth is like you can't just parcel off a percentage of it and quote unquote protect it well, and it's like the a, rest it doesn't work that way it's like making a zoo it it sounds like <laughs> yeah i mean making a zoo out of mother earth so the, these ferns exactly. will be in this cage and uh, yeah, those are the yeah, plans. And, and, and the interesting thing is they'll take the humans out of the park in order to, quote unquote, protect it. But they don't understand that the, the earth needs a human touch. But it's like you said, a nurturing human touch, not an extractive uh, raping human touch. It needs a it, without us. The, the earth gets overgrown. Things get a little bit... Um, I mean, I'm looking at the forest in Alabama right now. It's nothing the way it used to look when the people were taking care of it. It's overgrown. It's dense. The deer can't even walk through it. Um, it's inbred because the trees are getting too close to each other. So they're getting weaker. They're more susceptible to parasites. They're more susceptible to bugs and, and other plant parasites. And so... We had a way of really clearing out the forest, taking care of it, managing its genetic diversity. And of the 4% of land on Earth that is taken care of by the original peoples of that land, they hold 80% of the world's biodiversity on that 4% of land. Wow. Do you have... um ideas you can give on the on the macrocosm level like somebody who is relating to a garden and perhaps is relating to their garden in a, a way of forcing the uh, trying to force the earth do you have some practical tips about cooperating with with the land Yes, absolutely. I think one, so, some principles to go by 
are to to honor the local ecology, look around, see what kind of plants are indigenous to that land. A lot of people want to bring exotic plant species in because they remind them of home or they look fascinating. But I think to honor what the earth wants is to is to plant the species that were already there and make sure that those are taken care of because they have purpose. In the Native American philosophy, everything has purpose. Every stone, every deer, every rock, every tree, every person has a purpose. Nothing, creator put everything here with with a function, uh, including the coal in the earth and the oil in the earth. That oil is supposed to be down there. It lubricates tectonic plates. It does a lot of important things. And when we take the oil out, we suffer consequences. So anyways, to honor the, the design, the original design of that habitat, that's one principle. The second principle is to try and meld with what's already going on. For instance, instead of siphoning water away to and, and using aqueducts to move the water, you know, miles away, instead bring bring your bring your crops to where the water is. Um, like for instance, my people, we would plant our corn where the floodplain was. So that way our, our gardens were naturally watered because it was where the, the floods would come up whenever the monsoons came. And so we didn't need to, to carry a lot of water around. We just, we just had it in the floodplain. And so one of the things the archeologists say is, well, there's no marks on the earth here. So there's probably no there probably were no native people here because if there were, we would have evidence of it. There would be pyramids or aqueducts or, you know, foundations. But what they don't, what these archeologists don't understand is that we tried very hard to not leave a mark on the earth because we knew if you left a mark on the earth, it meant you did something disrespectful. So we try very hard to not leave marks that you can find even a hundred years from now, much less 2000 years from now. So you may be, depending on wherever you're standing in what is now called America, you may be standing on, on a place that was very densely populated where the population was very big and, and, and the food system was very intricate. And so these are things to think about is is what kind of trace are we going to leave because because native people when we became smart and we learned these things the hard way because we we did fail you know and that's how we learned these things once we became smarter and wiser we didn't leave marks on the earth but what we did leave in our wake our what we did leave as our legacy was biodiversity Lila, I would love it if you would honor us with one of your poems or two, if you have, from your book, Lifting Our Hearts Off the Ground. 
absolutely. Um, this book was published in 2017. It was a alliance between Native Americans and European Canadians. The European Canadian, uh, the Mennonites of Canada helped to publish this. So it's a very good uh, example of how Native people and European uh, settlers can work together to heal the past. But it's a poetic rendition of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, people call it UNDRIP for short, is the acronym. Okay. And the UNDRIP was published to detail and protect Native people around the world. So um, there's 40-some articles in the UNDRIP, and I, so I wrote 40-some poems to, uh, to match it. So this is one of them. We said we wanted a seat at the table. What we meant is we want you to come and sit by the river. The dichotomy of indigenous and non-indigenous is false. Only when we realize our own indigenosity can we live as the equals that we are. So I want to also give you another poem that I wrote to honor my grandmother and to honor my native language, which is Denebizad. You know, in English, it's the Navajo language, but in our language, we say Denebizad, which means the people's word. Mm-hmm. It is dawn. The sun is rising in the sky, and my grandmother and I are singing our prayers to the horizon. This morning, she is teaching us the meaning of Honjon. Although there's no direct translation from Denebizad, the Navajo language, into English, every living being knows what Honjon means. For Honjon is every drop of rain. It is every leaf on every tree. It is your every eyelash. It is every feather on the bluebird's wing. Honjon is the undeniable beauty of creation. And my grandmother knows this well, for she speaks the same language that grew out of the desert floors, like red stone arms reaching up into the sky, praising creation for all of its brilliance. Honjon is remembering that we are a part of the earth's brilliance. It is remembering that humanity is an expression of the earth's brilliance. And my grandmother knows this well, for she speaks the same language as a Lokachakai snowstorm. She speaks the same language as horse hooves hitting the dirt on birthdays. For she was a midwife and she would gallop to the women in labor until she became fluent in the language of those suffering mothers, until she became fluent in the language of those joyful mothers when she handed glowing newborns to their creator. Honjon is an experience, but it is not something you can experience alone, the eagles tell us as they lock talons in the stratosphere and fall to the earth as one. Honjon is inter-beauty. And my grandmother knows this well, 
for she speaks the same language as the male rain. And the male rain shoots lightning boys through the sky. It pummels the green corn children and huddles the horses against the cliff sides in the early afternoon. My grandmother also speaks the language of the female rain. And the female rain sends the scent of dust and sage into our holands, into our homes, and casts rainbows in the sky. Us dene, we know the meaning of Honjon. And each and every person listening to this poem knows the meaning of Honjon because it is what we are. And I think that deep down we know what Honjon does not mean. Like the days we live in fear, like the days we live in sadness, like the days we live for money, or like the days when I lived for fame, or like the days when the conquistadors came, the conquerors. They came, climbed off their horses, and told us they were going to take the mountains. Now we knew this was not Honjon because we knew you could not take a mountain. We knew you could not own a mountain. But we knew we could make it Honjon once again. So we took their silver swords and we took their silver coins and we melted them with fire and buffalo hide bellows and recast it into beautiful silver jewelry and placed it around their necks. We took their silver helmets straight off of their heads, melted them and turned them into fearless beauty and gave it back to them with love. This is the meaning of Honjon, my grandmother says. It is the healing of broken hearts. It is the healing of broken bones. It is the prayer that carried our people through genocide and through disease. She says it is the prayer that will carry humanity through anything, through global warming, through the global fear that dances like illusions, like shadows in our mind. She says today something very important. She says sometimes the easiest and most elegant way to defeat an army of hatred is to simply stand before it and sing to it. Sing to it beautiful songs until it falls to its knees and surrenders. It will surrender to you, she says, because it will have finally found a sweeter fire than revenge, a sweeter fire than greed. It will have found the fire of Honjon. And so my grandmother is talking to the colors of the sky at dawn. And she's saying, Honjon na hastli, Honjon na hastli, Honjon na hastli, Honjon na hastli, which means beauty and joy are restored again. It is dawn, my friends. Wake up. The night is over. Only gratitude. 
That's all. Just gratitude. Thank you, my friend. And my gratitude to you both for this good, important work you're doing. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.